if I had to choose between all my quantitative skills and qualitative skills, I choose the qualitative skills. You know what I mean? It's like, where do I think the world's going? What do people need? How do we do something really special? You can put rubrics and frameworks and stuff around these a little bit to help you think about them. But at the end of the day, it's, it's very qualitative. Hello again, my friends, and welcome. This show explores technology, investing, entrepreneurship, and personal growth to help you create a more abundant future. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on. To read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies, please visit ejorgensen.com. Today, my guest is Sebastian Marshall, the founder of Ultra Working. I've been using Ultra Working for a few years. I've been very excited to talk to Sebastian. I've been reading his stuff for a very long time. Uh, he's a very interesting dude. He's lived all over the world. He's had a variety of careers, um, but most of all, he is obsessed with peak performance in work, outside work, and he's here to share everything that he's learned about how we can work sort of near our peak productivity for as long as possible, maximize output. He's run a bunch of personal experiments and he brings the most successful into his company, Ultra Working, uh, the platform, the product um, that I've used for a while and uh, think is really interesting. We talked through many of his ideas and practices here today. And I think you'll hear some of the curious, extreme cases that fascinate me about him in our conversation. Please enjoy the conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. One of my favorite questions to like get to know somebody and their worldview a little bit is, is to start with who your heroes are. Oh man, I have a lot. I have a lot of heroes to be honest. Oh, good, good. That must be that must be uh, account for your interesting eclectic nature. Oh, thank you. I think there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that that uh, I count as heroes. I think people that that are able to single mindedly devote themselves to something and make a lot of contributions like Paul Erdish, the mathematician is definitely, definitely a hero of mine. There's a whole class of people I really like, which are people that go from one field that they get really good in one field and they go into a completely unrelated field and bring all the stuff from their first field to the second one to make big contributions. So that's like Eli Goldratt doing that for industrial engineering. The goal is an excellent book. If you haven't read it, you would absolutely love you read the goal by Goldratt. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah, that's a burner. That's a that's everybody. Everybody, everybody in business should read that, and a lot of people not in business should read that one. So I like people like that. And then, uh, hey, what's your definition of a hero? I, I got something fun for you. What's your definition of a hero? To me, they are people who respect and would like to emulate some piece of. It does not have to be like you. I think you can be very selective about like traits or attributes of heroes. Though I also am drawn to people who I think have figured out a bunch of stuff at once, you know, like who, who don't have a, a zero variable in their life. So some of those people are some of my heroes in that, in how that they combine and live like a wholesome life. But I don't think that's a necessary piece of the definition for everybody. Yeah. Probably a top five influential book on me in my life was, uh, was Thomas Carlyle, Victorian Scottish writer on heroes, hero worship and the heroic in history. So it's uh, you gotta, you gotta muck around through some, some old English. But to really paraphrase his argument really quickly, he said that, here, this is one of my favorite quotes. It is well said in every sense that a man's religion is the chief fact with regard to him, a man or a nation of men. By religion, I do not mean here the church creed he professes, the articles of faith, which he will sign words or otherwise assert, 
Not this holy, in many cases, not this at all. We see men of all types of uh, creeds and religions get to all levels. He says, no, this is not what I call religion. What a man does practically believe, and often without asserting it even to himself, the thing a man does practically lay to heart know for certain concerning his vital relations to this mysterious universe and his duty and destiny there, that is in all cases the primary thing for him and creatively determines all the rest. That is his religion. So he goes through that argument and he says, where does that come from? Like, why are we in the universe? What is the point of being here? And, uh, you know, the word religion um, has has shifted kind of meanings um, over time. I use the Latin word religio, just for personal religion, not like organized religion. Carlyle says like, hey, where does that come from? Like what we should do in the universe? Where does that come from? And his argument is that there's people that create systems of thought, largely a first person that comes up with it. And uh, he calls them heroes. And so it's like heroes create like a system of thought for like a group of people. And so, you know, Confucius would be a hero. Benjamin Franklin would be a hero. Hero doesn't make you good. You know what I mean? Like Stalin and Hitler were, were, were heroes for their, their time and place and their, their groups. And to, to a great detriment, they created systems of thought. But yeah, so that was Carlyle's definition of a hero. So it's kind of like you can look out what schools of thought you want to subscribe to, what moral philosophies, what technical schools of thought, and then the founders of those uh, schools of thought and the major contributors to them and then kind of look to, to emulate those. So I, I found that pretty fun. And that book was quite influential on me. Did you find anybody new to any new schools of thought to adopt from that? Oh, tremendously. You know, I, I love history. I'm a, I'm a pretty, pretty ferocious amateur historian. And there's all kinds of like eras and, and people that we, we never get exposure to. You know, it's, it's really interesting. An unfortunate thing I think about the, you know, the modern education system is everybody studies the exact same stuff. So like everybody in the United States learns about the American Civil War and the American Revolution or whatever. And, you know, it would be in theory much better if, if there was like some random assignment, you know, of what countries, because then we could share knowledge with each other. Like, so the Turkish War of Independence, right? The fall of the Ottoman Empire. And then Mustafa Kemal, he's a hero of mine, right? Mustafa Kemal was the commander at Gallipoli, uh, which were the Turks who were like way like way less technically technologically sophisticated than the British who they were fighting, um, held off a British, British amphibious invasion. Then eventually the, the allies won world war one, Turkey was getting dismembered and they were going to get treated real rough. Mustafa Kemal started the Turkish war of independence and fought like crazy to, to kind of emancipate Turkey and make it not like a puppet state and, and succeeded. So you come across people like that and you come across, you know, people from much, much older eras of history that are completely invisible and unknown to us. And you can learn a lot, a lot, a lot from people like that, like someone like a Scipio Africanus, who uh, defeated the Carthaginians in the, the Roman Carthage Wars. Amazing, amazing guy. Great book about him, B.H. Littleheart, Scipio Africanus, greater than Napoleon. So his like maneuver warfare, his diplomacy, his moving fast, his operations, his leadership. And you can kind of like absorb those lessons into how you think they're not like a playbook that you can just implement. They're not like a plug and play, but it can kind of like refine your wisdom and your ability when you see a situation to be like, Oh, this is kind of like that. Or maybe this principle applies here to that. Yeah. I, I can see the passion for, for history. And it seems like military history in particular in a bunch of your writing. I, one of the first times you had a big impact on me, I think was the series, uh, the blog series you wrote on the nature of operations. And I thought that was incredible. And I, I pulled some quotes from it, but I hope we can kind of talk through that because I think that is one of those things that is maybe most live or die and most the highest performing operational sort of organizations in the world are probably militaries. But there's so much to learn and pretty much almost directly apply to businesses, whether 
it's an independent one person business or, or a very big company. And so I learned a lot from that series and I'm sure you have applied a lot of that to your own company too. Yeah, totally. hundred percent. And I, I do want to clarify though, like I like military history. I don't have a special affinity for military history per se. Like I really like artists. I think you'd spend a lot with Da Vinci and how he worked on the theory of perspective and studied anatomy and the amount of hard work he did and his cross-disciplinary nature and whatever. But the thing I like about military, military history is in the military, you kind of know, you, you pretty much know who won or lost a conflict. And outside of some kind of very asymmetrical conflicts where very technical society meets a non-technical society, usually, usually militaries have somewhat similar technical sophistication and, uh, in a given era when they're fighting each other. Yeah, one side's got better hardware usually, but, but not so much, right? So I, I actually, when I looked into it, I found four fields that I think you can really take away a lot of universal lessons from the mil- military and war is one of them. But I also think competitive sports, which I've spent a lot of time doing, right? So in the NFL or the NBA, you know, the professional sports leagues, you know, they have the same resources, they're playing the same game, you know, they're, they're doing the same thing. So the coaches that consistently win and the, and the organizations like the San Antonio Spurs, the New England Patriots that are outperforming, right? They're all playing the same game with the same rules, right? So you can learn a lot from them. There's a universality. I think finance is the same way because there's an objective quality to the returns. So there's relatively objective qualities in these three fields as opposed to art where we can like argue. Clearly, P- Picasso was prolific. Clearly, Picasso was an innovator. Clearly, he got lionized reviews. Clearly, he was very successful. I happen to think his art's really ugly. I, I hate cubism. I think it's awful. Do you know what I mean? So like, but, but we could argue about that. You know what I mean? Like we could, whatever, but there's a subjective nature to that. Whereas like if the San Antonio Spurs win a championship, they won the championship and you can't really argue about that. Fourth field, actually, that's, that's emerging. It's not, it's not quote unquote cool. There's another one that I think is probably going to be increasingly worth studying, which are our pro-level video game players, right? And like how they train and, and, some of the Korean players, and I, and I don't really play play very much video games. I, I have a lot of. I think it's great, but you can you know can suck infinite time. You got to be really careful with it. It's like it's like drinking. You know, you start doing a little bit, and then suddenly you're just like waking up with a headache. You know, like the Korean players where they're training their fingers and their wrists to get the optimal commands, and, and thinking about you know, or the pro level Counter Strike players where they're rederiving how police SWAT teams talk to each other in matches and stuff like that. You know, it's like I find that very interesting. So those four fields have some objective measure and basis of the results as opposed to subjective. And they're also a little bit less locally constrained where like, uh, if you were in Silicon Valley 30 years ago, you were going to probably just do much better technologically than if you were in Siberia. And, and that doesn't mean necessarily the people in Silicon Valley were like doing things better themselves, but there was like a, you know, network effects and, and, and colleagues and whatnot, right? Whereas a sports match that's evenly weighted or two evenly weighted militaries or you know, finance where people are participating in the same markets or video games, you can kind of see who the winners and losers are and, and kind of extract and learn the lessons. So that's why I like the military history. But but I like these other fields and the subjective stuff is okay too. But when there's data on the winners and losers, then that you can't argue about whether, you know, like Matisse was a colleague of uh, Picasso and he's like, this is ugly. It looks like a bad joke, <laughs> um, you know, about the famous Demoiselles painting. And I'm like, I agree with Matisse. With sports, you know who won the championship with wars, you know what the treaties look like at the end and such. So that that universal basis and that that kind of quantitative basis to let you evaluate, I think is very helpful. Yeah, I think there's something to studying zero-sum games in order to discover sort of tactics or habits or training methods or mindsets. I don't like to play them personally. I, I have a number of times in life, but like I would much rather choose industries or games or products or companies that are much more positive sum. 
So, and I get the same impression from you. So how do you sort of translate, like take lessons that you've learned from one of these areas and sort of apply it to entrepreneurship? Yeah. Hey, that's brilliantly said. That was brilliantly said. Hey, you just, that was a little bit of a, I'm having a little, little epiphany moment there. You're right. There is something of a zero sum nature to, to all of these things. You know, maybe there's positive externalities in some of these things, right? Certainly a, a very disciplined military that benevolently handles a place while the Marshall Plan after World War II, whatever. So, so maybe it's not totally zero sum, but I see what you mean. And that's, that's really insightful. Yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, those are pretty close to zero sum games. And I think with a zero sum game, every fraction of a percentage point of edge matters a lot. You know what I mean? You know, you look at, at basketball, right? It's like, we're talking about one tricky way to, to dribble or set a pick that's unexpected or whatever, gets an open shot that's 20% more likely to go in. You get five or six of those in a game and then you win the game by one point at the end. Do you know what I mean? Like, right? Like basketball games, you know, once the teams are pretty good, tend to be pretty close, right? All right. So talk to me about this. I like this observation of we've got, we study zero sum games and, and cause they're so optimized, like every player at a very top level, like they're winning by fractions of a percent. They're taking edge wherever they can. I see you as one of those people, at least from the outside. Like I see you for lack of a better word, optimizing life. Like I know that you are a person who measures like every minute of your life and has for a long time. And it's just sort of like always working with high intention towards something. I think there's no amount of unpacking that that's not that's not interesting. So I'd love to dive into like how you started that, how you manage it, what do you get out of it, why do you do it? That sort of like maximum intention quantification sort of mindset is really interesting. Well, you know, I think in in business or if you're building a you know a social organization like a nonprofit or a university, it's it's not you're actually not going to win by optimizing around the edges, right? You're going to get one, two, three core advantages that are very, very, very special, right? And and that's where your success is going to come from. There are fields where people get in and they win through ruthless optimization, right? There's some people do that in real estate. You can do that, um, you know, in a lot of very commodity-based fields of just like ruthlessly eliminating costs and, and optimizing everything operationally can get there. Yeah, retail, I, I presume, is, is the same way. I don't really know much about retail, but yeah, it sounds, sounds like it's probably that. Like Walmart, I do know Walmart really focused on the turnover of their shelf space super aggressively and they build logistics systems and predictive systems and whatnot. So, you know, when you're doing business, it's not the ruthless optimizations that are, that are going to get you there. I, I do it largely because I like it. And it's also like the field that I'm in benefits from that. So it also helps with product development. It helps with connecting with people. And, and so it's like what my field is. Do you know what I mean? Like a, you know, David Perel on your show, he's a writer. So when he does research on better writing and aesthetics and stylistics and poetics, it isn't just for his own enjoyment or a side thing. It makes him better at what he does, right? So, so for me, the ruthless optimization stuff, I, I don't want to keep calling it ruthless talk about zero-sum games a second ago. The very intensive optimization stuff helps, but but I don't but I don't think that's what people need in the beginning. I, I you know if you're if you're going into business, you really want to find the core of something that's really special and 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 get the theory behind that. And you really want to figure out who you're going to serve and, and and how to do a really good job and ideally a really special job in doing that. And then optimizing around the edges can make a, a big difference for sure. But yes, um, I, I optimize like crazy. I get a big kick out of it. So I'm not necessarily recommending it. You know, I feel like a lot of people take their own hobbies and interests and they recommend it fanatically to everyone. But yeah, you're right. For about two years in a row, I, I tracked down to the five minute block every single day. And I could tell you, you know, if you want to know what I was doing in, in 2018 on May 13th at 3 
12.13 p.m., I could go dig out my old records and, and tell you. I could tell you what my stats were that week of how much time I put into different categories and whatnot. And I learned a heck of a lot from doing it. And people say they don't have time. The first time I started doing time tracking, let's make it real grounded, not, not so abstract. First time I started doing time tracking, I chose what my MIW, most important work, was. I chose. I picked something. And a week later, a week later, I felt like I was busy all week. I was doing a lot of stuff. It's the first time I ever did this. A week later, I'd only put in about four and a half hours on what I had defined as my most important. And I said it was my most important. And nobody, like, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have a gun in my head. A hurricane didn't hit my city that week. There was no real, real, real good reason why I wasn't doing this. That was one three hour session. And then like 30 minutes here and there, maybe like an hour once and 30 minutes once, something along those lines. Right. And I'm like, well, okay, no not surprising that the big things aren't moving when you only put four and a half hours into them, right? So if you put four and a half hours in your most important work in the morning on the first day of the week, and then after a little lunch and a little admin, you do it again, you know what I mean? You could see that that it's very possible to have double the throughput in one day that people that normally work at that pace do in one week. And I think we've all like experienced this when like, you know, a college term papers do like the next day and suddenly you become like the Tasmanian devil and you do it all in one day. In theory, I'm just throwing this out there. I'm just throwing this out there. In theory, you could do that the day after the paper got assigned. This, this, this was a haunting idea to me. I want, I want to say this again. I want to say this again. Everyone's like, ah, that's a cute idea. No, no, no. I'm serious. In theory, you could Tasmanian devil your way through something just like you would when the final deadline's coming and you could emulate all the conditions. You could put yourself into a high stress state you could get a bunch of Red Bull. Whatever you do when you're on the wire, you could, in theory, do on any given Tuesday and get a bunch of stuff done, right? You could do it. And, and so that was very intriguing to me. So I started trying to do that. And then sometimes I would, and it was like, it was great. And I really enjoyed it. Now, you don't want to do that all the time. You can kind of burn yourself out. But yeah, optimizing around the edges is great. But I mean, like, you know, when I first started tracking it, I thought, like, oh, maybe I'll, you know, automate my email down three minutes or whatever. And I'm like, yo, there's like 168 hours a week. I only put four of them in the thing that I wanted to do. Like, there's, it's like, you know, you don't need to be an astrophysicist to figure out how to improve the system a little bit, you know? Yeah. I, like, I feel like there's an interesting conversation to have with you about productivity because I, I tend to check out of most productivity conversations. Like, I, I wonder actually if you have a more nuanced way to describe what you do than, than just productivity. Like, what, what is like that hobby or that optimization? Yeah, like, no, the problem, the problem with the word productivity, which we try to kind of avoid when we can, the problem with it is, is there's just been a lot of overpromising and underdelivering, especially in, in high tech and information technology, you know? So, like Slack is like where work happens. It's like, no, no, it's not. That's their, their motto. And it's like, no, no, it's not. It's like, it's like a really elegant chat. That's valuable. Like your communications are going to be more enjoyable, more pleasant. It's more smooth. It's more modern. There's integrations. That's really nice. It's not where work happens. It's chat out. Evernote similarly had some, you know, your place for all your work. It's like, no, it's not. It's, it's a note-taking app. It's a place to write down, subscribe some notes out. In the day, it was first class at what it did. Really good syncing, right? So, so you get all these... These, these companies that, that, that do one kind of narrow function and, and do a good job on it. And then they overpromise that they're the total productivity. So people kind of start to tune out on it when they, they kind of zoom out. And, and like I was saying earlier, a lot of the people that, that ruthlessly track and optimize really just um, do it out of a personal interest. And, and so then you take a look at them and they're, you know, they're like people that do it as a hobby and do it as a, as a theory. And that's how I started doing it. And I'm not claiming it's the, the, the greatest thing ever for everyone. So you need a core of something like really, really special. You need to be like really, really good people. You need to understand people. You need to understand 
psychology and, and you need to hone your own judgment and your wisdom and stuff like that if you want to be successful. Then as for productivity, I, I think the other thing too is it, there's, a, there's an anti-signaling effect. The people that are searching for productivity are people that are unproductive, right? So somebody goes into Google and types in, how do I be productive, right? And they're not being productive. So, so the way to monetize and to sell to that and, and, and to get Google AdWords and put them to a landing page and sell is like, are you feeling like a freaking loser that blah, 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 and you're not productive and blah, 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 blah. So when you Google it, all the Google search results on, on productivity are, are polluted. You know, what you should be having come up when you search productivity, if it was like, if it was like not based on the, 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 the links thing and the, the SEO and the page rank, if it was based on actually the real shit is like, you should pull up Richard Hamming, you know, like you and your research, if it's like a young person, which is like a, just a beautiful, beautiful essay from the guy that was at Bell Labs where they invented like half of modern computing. You know what I mean? Like Richard Feynman should come up when you search for productivity. I don't like Pablo Picasso, but a little bit about Pablo Picasso. The dude was prolific. He wrote, did thousands and thousands of pieces. It's not my cup of tea, but he was very productive. Da Vinci, how he really deeply studied anatomy and whatnot, or things about you know uh, how the San Antonio Spurs front office works, or how Bill Belichick does it in football, and 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 you know breakdowns around that. But what typically comes up in the AdWords. And you know, the SEO and whatnot is, is, is garbage. That is like, it's not your fault. Here's what you need to do. Start by, and it's like garbage. Buying this SaaS app. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's garbage uh, or, or a course or a book or whatever. And it's garbage. And, and you know, what we try to do is we try to create edge for, for, for really top performers and, and, and really demanding fields for people that are very analytical and ambitious. And we don't, we're not, we're not remedial at all. We're like not trying to fix, fix you. If you're really good, we're wanting to make you better, you know? So we got headquarters, our desktop app that's got some really good tools in it and some interfaces for getting a lot of work done. And like, we can like fully, if you're in the United States or Canada, we can like fully automate your nutrition where like hot meals will just show up at your door with the exact macro micronutrient mix you want for like, if you're lifting weights, we'll give you more protein and more carbs on the days you lift time to that. And then we'll put you on a deficit if you want to cycle the calories on non-lifting days to recomposition. And then we build stuff like, you know, like work cycles and pentathlon and stuff like that. And those are all for people that are already performing at a pretty high level. Now there are some fundamentals and I'm empathetic to the fact that sometimes people need to get the fundamentals and like, we're happy to do that, but that's like not our, uh, that's not like what we're doing in business. We say peak performance to kind of skirt around the productivity word cognitive and affective, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I'm still looking for a great word. If you get a better word for it than me, I'll, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all ears. I'll send a little bonus your way or something if you can get some better word than productivity for us. Yeah, I think that's... like Productivity always struck me as, as painful just because the... like I, I always frame my efforts towards this as... like Leverage is one of the main mental models that I go back to because it's about increasing impact, not about squeezing the last drop out of the fruit when the fruit is you like that's what productivity feels like to me is kind of like how do i flog myself and extract the most possible from myself and i'm like that sounds it sounds badass sometimes like you want to believe that you can do that and operate at your limit or whatever it's fun yeah but it's also like you don't want to actually live that way most of the time at least most people don't and i think like actually ultra working does a very good job of introducing a bunch of this sort of mindset is like it's a, it's really about increasing your impact and your output and there's a bunch of creative ways to do that that are not just squeezing yourself harder and pushing yourself harder and working another hour yeah so so by the way i would i would make a distinction there on the squeeze that every drop drop out of the fruit first off i think Anyone that wants to be a top, top, top performer. So first off, we need to make a distinction between people that want to be top performers and people that like want to have like reasonably balanced lives. 
right away, if somebody's listening, maybe there's some young people that aren't sure that could go either way. But there's like some people that are like, I want to be the best in my field, or I want to be really exceptional and outperforming. You know what I mean? There's people that genuinely aspire to the US presidency and are building the connections and participating in party politics and stuff to try to get elected assembly, assembly person, and then they're going to make a run at governor, and then they're going to make a run at president. And they genuinely want to, and they're going to need to sell out everything they have to get there. They're going to, you know, because other people are, right? So those extremely competitive, you know, we're talking about zero-sum games earlier. So you need to ask yourself whether you want to be that person or not. But if you don't, but you're moderately ambitious, I do think going all in for a week or two occasionally is really good. My friend Nick Winter runs a tech company out in San Francisco. He used to do these things called Maniac Weeks, where he optimized everything away, got all his food lined up and, and talked with his wife in advance, got a standing desk and everything to see how many hours is the most he could program in a week. And he would like pre-set up all the problems he's going to work on in programming. And he would put in like 100, 120, 130 hours or something in a week just to see if he could do it. And then like he'd be smoked the next week. And and so like his net productivity across those two weeks would be not great. You know, maybe good, but but not outstanding, right? But that shows you the top end of what you're capable of. And it like kind of lets you take a watermark of what you could do if you need to in a crisis in a week. I think that's cool. And I think everybody should should consider doing that. Now, whatever, if somebody has like a mental health challenge or a health challenge or, or they have a family and then the family's not accommodating or there's like, a t- like, like, don't be stupid. Like I'm, I'm very against being stupid. You know what I mean? But like, if you're a young person, you're really like quite healthy, you got a support network and stuff. I think it's really cool to do this from time to time. And sometimes I do this for a week to a month and it's, it's great. You just feel really great doing it. But you're right. In the big picture, yeah. I think there are different elements to it. You know, I think everybody learns eventually that like systems and, and people eventually become more important than your individual productivity. I think I learned this pretty early on, you know, when you when you when you're when you're managing people, when you're a boss, you can like, I killed it this week and you did all this stuff, and then you take a look at, at, at one of your your staff's work and, and they didn't do anything that week, and maybe they finished some stuff on Wednesday and you didn't give them anything new to do and they didn't ask and, and they did nothing for three days. And it was like, man, like if I could have stepped back and been paying a little more attention for half an hour or an hour. You know, this lady over here, she wanted to do great, great work. She's like great, great at it. And, and she wanted to do something, but she had nothing to do. So she just did whatever for a few days. You kind of start to learn that lesson. Systems are really important. One thing that might be interesting, probably would be interesting to you. Do you know Zach Cantor, who runs Steady? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd love to have him on the podcast too. I think he's, oh, he's get him. really he's, quite clever about a lot of these ideas genius. too. Yeah. He's a genius. Did you see the, the recent excerpt from the Steady annual letter to investors? No. Okay, so steady no. uh, uh, STEDI letter. He was talking about operational excellence, and one aspect of operational excellence that they focus on is reducing toil. And they use like the Google Google SRE definition of toil. We could pull this up if we want. I'm a little bit gun shy about using my browser now when we're recording here, but um, toil from the Google SRE book definition: the kind of work tied to running a production service that tends to be manual, repetitive, automatable, tactical, devoid of enduring value. And it scales linearly as a service grows. So aggressive elimination of toil is a great idea. That seems like it fits with your, you you wrote quite a bit about the Toyota production system. It fits at their kind of category of like non-value producing work. Yeah, they had three categories, value producing work, which they're extremely strict about, right? That's like literally screwing the tire onto the car. It's like literally direct customer production work. Non-value producing work which they actually refer to as stuff like payroll and security and, and, and stuff like that, right? And then waste. And waste is everything else, right? And so actually, they're really hardcore about it. They classify like any movement of parts or materials as waste. So if you got to like get up from your workstation, walk five feet to pick up a tool and walk back, they consider that five feet of walking waste. 
So, you know, really optimizing your environment so that that's minimized. Because like going and getting a tool is actually not creating value. It's like a necessary step. But if the tool is already in the right spot, then there you go. So like getting rid of stuff like that, optimizing that, that's a great idea to optimize on a systems level where you're not squeezing every drop of juice out of yourself, but you're making your job and your team's job easier over time. Yeah. Reducing toil, reducing waste, eliminating or reducing non-value producing work is going back to your, or I guess to tie this into your kind of experiment around like extreme measurement. Do, do you feel like going through those, whether it's like, you know, a maniac week or a, a two years of measuring your time, do you find that you have a new higher sort of baseline of, of productivity or awareness or something like coming out of one of those things? Like where do they accumulate long-term versus just sort of like, that was an interesting experiment, but I'm pretty much where I started. I mean, so there's, there's two, there's two kind of confounding factors. One is that COVID hit, which like destroyed my like beautiful circuit. Like I had the most beautiful setup with my, my gym and my swimming pool and like the co-working space that like a section of it was like ours and like the healthy food restaurant and stuff. So like COVID just absolutely wrecked it up. So immediately after the sample was the, the COVID era where like socializing and travel and stuff was gone. So there's that. So it's, it's really quite hard to say. Cause like I used to, so I used to, you know, how like people play multiple chess games at the same time. You know, like like the the grandmasters will play on five boards. I used to sometimes do synchronous meetings. So if you have like junior team members, if you have like junior team members, give somebody like twenty minutes of work to do, right? To like if they're learning a problem, give them twenty minutes of work to do. Go check in with someone for ten minutes, somebody else for ten minutes. Give them twenty minutes of stuff. Check in the next person for ten minutes. So it's like reps. So you can have like a rolling meeting. It was so much fun, and and if you set it up correctly, and and like it's not, it was like there's like probably if you imagine there's like a a really rude, the horrible way. And there's like a cool, fun way. It's, it's the cool, fun way if, you're having, if anyone's having a hard time imagining it. It was, it was fun. It was, and it's not like, it's not like stations. It's like we're all like posted up in a big, like a co-working space that like one of the rooms tend to be pretty empty and it was big and luxurious. And I would just kind of like cycle through and I'd be like, hey, I'm gonna check with you for 10 minutes and then I'll see you in, in 20 more. So we're gonna start every 30 minutes and then I'm gonna check in with you for two to seven minutes, give you feedback on your work. You can jam a little bit and then I'll be back. And so I would just kind of circle through. So like those, those types of things went away. And then we started to have to get on more remote work norms and build remote work systems. And it's a bit of a different game. You know, as a CEO, it's very hard to calibrate because your job's always changing. So like, am I doing a good job at my job? Like the minute that you do a really, really good job at something, you tend to establish a new baseline, new capabilities, new product, new team members, new ops. And then it's, it's interesting. It's, it's the paradox of being a CEO is when you do a really, really, really bang up job, then you've immediately put yourself into a, I'm onto a new thing with new capabilities. That I'm at zero percent on, and maybe bad at. You know, you cause new problems with success. You really grow over on one side, which creates scaling problems on this other th- side. Now you need to hire for a role you don't know as much, and so on and so forth. So CEO, there's there's a bit of a a thing that doesn't apply to everybody else, which is when you do a really good job, typically your job changes or or can change. And then obviously uh, the the macro conditions. I think I think sometimes people are a little too sensitive to those in small companies. Like oh, the economy's down. It's like yeah, it usually doesn't matter that much. But it, it does matter a little bit. And sometimes if you're in a field, it might matter a lot if you're in like a travel-related field or something and COVID hits, right? So the landscape's always changing. Consumer preferences are always changing. I, I think... This is the first time I've talked about this publicly. I think there's going to be a big, big, big shift sometime in the next one to two years. I actually don't know what it is, but I think we're in a very unstable equilibrium right now societally around like consumption and demand and how people relate to organizations and employment, I think something's going to change. I don't know. It's like a vague, vague thought. I, I don't... 
I'm, I'm not like being a pundit on TV that's like making like a unfalsifiable prediction. I'm, I'm just talking about a sense that I have. I'm not, you know, but I, I think there's going to be a, I think there's going to be a pretty big shift in some way. I'm seeing, I don't know, I'm seeing, you know, this is one of the nice things about studying history is you, you eventually start to get a sense of like when the, when the conditions are right for shifts. Do you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm seeing a number of factors that would seem to indicate that there could be, you know, just to riff on this for a second more, I've, I've been exploring this and, and, you know, it's not super well honed, but like, how do I put this? People tend not to investigate and reevaluate and tend not to be open to certain types of new and different ways of doing things when things are like pretty good or going up. And when things get a little bit bad and it seems temporary, like COVID, people are just holding out for things to get back. I think now in 2022, people aren't looking at like, I want the world to be like it was in 2018. They're kind of like, I feel like a lot of the, the general general public, which I feel like probably a lot of listeners of the show that are in business are probably insulated from a lot of the problems normal people have. You know, we're, we're very very fortunate in, in many ways that we have a lot of control over our lives and, and, you know, resources and and whatnot. So, you know, maybe people aren't noticing it, but I, I think a lot of people in the, in the general public are like hurting pretty hard right now. And I think it's kind of crossed over in the general public into almost despair. You know, I, I would really not be surprised if sometime in the next two years, something kind of uh, catches wildfire. I think probably people are going to want very intense experiences that don't feel threatening or scary or difficult or expensive to opt into, right? And I don't know if we'll see political upheaval or not. I'm, I'm actually thinking maybe not political, but more social. And, and I don't know what that looks like. That might be like, you know, somebody going to like dig, a, a, you know, like, like they're like, oh, there's garbage. We're going to clean up the garbage. And one person just says, I'm going to go clean up the garbage. And then like a bunch of people come out and then like suddenly everybody in the whole city is cleaning up the garbage. And it's like the big, everyone cleans up the garbage in America movement. I don't know that like that kind of thing. It's probably not that. But anyways, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but you asked me about your own performance. It's, it's hard to measure. It's hard to calibrate because the world's always changing. And as a CEO, your job's always changing. And I think we live in really, really weird times that are going to be really, really weird. So I'm trying to get a bead on where the world's going to go and anticipate it so that we're like ahead of the curve, not behind the curve and getting caught flat-footed. That's why I digressed into that subject is because that's how I'm thinking about my performance lately. Yeah. I, and I, I think that other people are making that same observation. I mean, the, as I'm working on the book about biology, he, he observes a period of unrest due to some of the same sort of historical factors. I think that he, that you and he have seen, like looking at the long arcs of history. I'm curious, you had a great quote in a different podcast I was listening to you on that pertains to this sort of like, where is your limit? How do you know? Like how fun is it to push yourself when most people, when they think they're giving 100%, are only giving 40 to 60% of their max effort. That's why we say stuff like give 110% to just try to get people over the, <laughs> over the, the like mediocrity. So I think that's one, I think that's an interesting idea. It's, it's almost seems to me the core of ultra working and like what really excites you about it. But I'm also curious now, it, it's so much easier to imagine that as an individual contributor than as a CEO. And I wonder what it, what it's like as somebody who loves to try to give a hundred percent, how do you do that as a CEO? Like, is, is that, and how different does it feel from, you know, when you were just starting this company out? Yeah. The, the quote that you're referring to is, is not my own. That was from Stan Beecham who wrote a pretty good book. It's not my favorite book in the space. It's okay. If you've already read everything else, you can read it, but there's, there's, there's other books that I'd read first called elite minds. And he coached top level athletes, Olympic athletes. And I believe the example that he used is he would ask people, hey, 
if you just started jogging at a very slow pace, right? And and you're going to get a little bit of water and snacks handed to you while you while you jog, right? How long could you go, right? And then someone's like, I don't know, three hours, four hours. And he's like, actually, you could jog for like three days straight <laughs> or something like that. You know what I mean? Something crazy. Now, you wouldn't want to. You'd be in bad shape at the end of it, right? So he said that, you know, what most people feel like is 100% is... 40, 60, whatever, right? And so you feel like you're dying when you go above that limit. Your body starts to like break apart and howl at you, right? And what Beecham said is to be an Olympic athlete, you know, you have to have certain prerequisites. If you want to be a real competitor at the Olympics, you need to have a swimmer's type body. If you're swimming, you need to be sufficiently tall if you're playing basketball and so on, right? But assuming you've met those prerequisites, if you can give 80% of your theoretical maximum, right? And, and, and target doing that basically every single day with appropriate rest days. And you'll screw it up three or four times a month. It's also okay to screw it up and have a bad day three or four times a month. So if you're hitting 80% of your training ability, 26 times a month, that's Olympic level performance. And 100% is like, I'm forgetting if this is exactly how Beecham put it, but like 100% is like you die. So you don't want to give 100%. 100% is, there's no 110. 100% is like your cellular whatever just disintegrated and you're dead, right? So there's a, there's a model that I think is really, really useful. Um, Kai Zhao, who founded Ultra Working with me, he's since, since moved on, but still really, really good friends. Kai Zhao and I put together a model. We were really discussing and arguing about this topic extensively. There's a difference between what we call the MSP and the MPP, the maximum sustainable pace and the maximum possible pace. And it's really, really worthwhile to know which one of those you're going for when you're going for maximum. So maximum sustainable. Max possible is what I talked about with Nick Winter, Maniac Week. Max possible is, I unfortunately, it was not lined up this way, but I unfortunately had to have a 21-hour in a row day. And the only break that I had was having yoga and I was taking meals while while on calls and, and such like that. So I had one of those days where I had to work 21 hours straight. They sucked. Screwed me up a little bit. It was just one of those days where like that was called for. You could do that. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> right? So that's possible. It's absolutely possible. So I think sometimes people don't draw a distinction between max sustainable and max possible. And, and, and then there's also different strategies. Sometimes people will try to get everybody going in the same direction for like a max possible or approaching max possible sprint for a short period of time, like when a product release is coming out. Or sometimes it just really is the case that you know your company exhibits at a trade show and there's a ton of opportunities and you want to run at the max possible pace for two to three weeks afterwards to follow up and capitalize on all the gains followed by some sort of rest period and recovery period. So yeah, so there's a big difference between going for max possible pace and, and having those tools in the toolbox when they're called for when you're doing um, when you're in a window of opportunity or in a crisis where really extremely, extremely maximum performance is, is, is called for. Or trying to set up max sustainable pace where you got your yoga and you got your morning routine and you, know, you got your healthy diet and you got your, your meal system dialed in. You got your, you know, you got your bed with the, you know, the, the blackout curtains and all that jazz. So yeah, I think that's a useful distinction. I sometimes run a, try to run at the max sustainable pace and sometimes try to run at the max possible pace. And I try to be clear on which one I'm doing in any given week. As you get more senior and have more team and more systems, increasingly the job of an executive is about having good judgment, right? So that's really tricky and it's really nebulous. It's about having good judgment, not about, as you said, individual contributors sitting down or whatever. And how do you know you're having good judgment? It's like, well, things are going in the direction you want. The predictions you're making are happening or being outperformed. People seem to be happy and the winds are coming. So it's quite difficult to evaluate performance. 
did the CEO of Delta Airlines do a good job during the pandemic? Like, who knows? Obviously, they went down, but they were going to go down. Do you know what I mean? Did they go down as little as possible is the question. Very tricky. Yeah. that's. Th- we joked earlier when we were like getting started about optimizing for fun. And, and I think that's both a joke and a reality and something that as you shift from kind of like hardcore individual contributor mode to just being in like a different chapter of life or a slightly more comfortable place or trying to set up a family or whatever, like these transitions that I think a lot of the, and I, I was certainly here, I, I imagine you are too, of like the very hard charging, ambitious, max sustainable pace almost all the time, kind of 20 something goes into like, oh, I actually don't have to sprint to survive anymore. But I also have been sprinting long enough that I kind of have a hard time not like I have to engine, I have to almost work as hard to like build in the the chill or the fun or the like, I have to structure the unstructured time. Is that something you have gone through or will go through or don't think about it all yet? Do you chill? And if so, do you like, uh, how do you set that up? Do you, are you as structured about that as you are with, with the working stuff? Yeah, I think it's it's really critical to know yourself and to know your personality. And I don't recommend what I do to anybody. I go crazy with pointless relaxation. I, and I know that this bothers people. So I don't want to like ruin anyone's fun. Like I can I can make an appearance like at a party and be like really sociable and pleasant. And like I can come in and like give FaceTime and give respect to some people and come in and like have a good time for like 30, 40 minutes and then bounce. But I like to show up at like a party like early and help the host set up or show up like right at the end and help them clean up. Like I like to be doing stuff. Do you know what I mean? Just experiencing. I've learned the hard way. And I'm not... Sometimes I say this and people like are like, oh, this guy's a jerk. He thinks he's better than people. No, 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 not at all. It's just how I'm wired. I like to do things every now and then. So, so I like to play cooperative board games with people, but I like to play really hard cooperative board games where like the default is that you lose the game. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes we'll go play uh, uh, team shooter games and... I find people that want to play the same way where we do like deliberate practice. So we'll put some rounds, some unranked rounds on, and we will just go and we'll like pick a point on the wall and try to like strafe and jump around and hit that point as much as we can to like practice aiming. It's amazing to me that people play video games and they don't like practice, you know, like in a, like if in, with real life firearms and marksmanship, you go to the range and you practice, right? You can do this in shooter games. Do you know what I mean? And like, you'll be better at them and you can see the spread patterns on shotguns and like shoot them at the wall and stuff and like look at the targets. Then we work on like our verbal commands and our movement and like flanking people and stuff like that. And just the, the joy of doing something to the best of the possible ability and and executing as well as possible and as good as possible. Ideally, this is productive activity most of the time that makes the world a better place or builds my life up. But. Yeah, I just, I don't really like to chill, man. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm weird. I'm wired weird. Like, that's, I don't recommend it for other people. Like, it's, it's, if you're not wired that way, don't try it. Is, is there stuff that's, that's not productive, I guess, like, quote unquote, that you, that you do that is like, you know, recharges you? Massages are really good, but I think they're productive. <laughs> I don't know. Is it that, that's value value producing work, or it's not value producing work? But it's oh sure, oh, not well, then, then no, then then a bazillion things, then a bazillion things. No, no, then a bazillion things. Right? I think there's a whole class of stuff that's that's rejuvenating, or I think things that give you new inputs and and more novelty, like inputs and novelty. Good. I love museums. I, I love going to look at at art. I love reading. I love having conversations like the conversation where I, this is like a normal conversation that I have with people. A little more powerful podcast voice, but this is like a, you know, like a normal conversation I'd have with somebody, right? This sort of stuff I I really like. More technical issues. Yeah. Yeah. But just like, you know, I don't know. Like I remember when we were like kids in high school, we'd like 
hang out and get a Dr. Pepper and like sit on the couch and just chill. And like, I, I don't know, that doesn't really do anything for me. Do you know what I mean? I like to have some stimulation and some novelty and something to experience. And honestly, I just like doing things. Do you know what I mean? So like going, if somebody's like gardening, like going gardening with them and seeing how that works, it's like really cool. You see how plants grow and stuff. You help them out. I don't know. It's the kind of stuff that I like doing stuff, but I, I'm wired weird. I also like to work seven days a week. I get thrown off if I don't work. If I don't do my morning routines and stuff, it screws me up. So even if I want to take days off, I put in like one to three hours in the morning and then take the rest of the day off. And that's typically what I do on vacation. I've tried to unplug. It screws me up. It's deleterious. It's like unhealthy for me. Do you know what I mean? I like the routine of waking up and starting the day strong, getting some stuff done and being calibrated. Right? But not everyone's like that. Some people do way better on six days a week. Some people do better on five. Some people, I presume, maybe do better on four, even if you wanted to get throughput. Certainly throughput divided by time, maybe. Raw throughput, I don't know. But yeah, like I'm a seven days a week kind of guy, but people need to know themselves. And, and that's a very personal exploration to figure out one's preferences and, and what works for you. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I realize this part of the conversation, I don't actually have a good sense of like where ultra working is as an organization. Can you, whatever you're comfortable with, given us scale of community size or team size or whatever to kind of help me wrap my head around like what your day-to-day -day job actually is these days? Yeah, sure. So we've grown, you know, 50% a year the last couple of years. Actually, we did no marketing. So it's pretty cool. It was all word of mouth. It's about a quarter million dollars of revenue last year. And then for team, we are just going through a hiring cycle. So I think we're probably going to the target will be to be at, let's see, maybe 12 people. We're hanging right now six, seven, eight. Right now, depending on, you know, some people that are kind of in part-time or whatever. And we're also exploring. So I'm actually headed out. This is my first time or my second time during the pandemic traveling internationally. So I'm actually going to head over to the Philippines and, and, and Chris Natter, who's an engineer on our team, who's uh, in Europe, he's from Germany. He's going to come out there. And Andrea, who came on and, and started working with us, is out in the Philippines. I mean, she's, she's, doing, uh, she's, she's doing really well and doing really great. So I'll be able to link up in person. And this is like actually the first time we've been able to link up in person since the, the stupid pandemic started. So we're about to go get a big jam on there. The biggest thing we've been focusing on recently is, yeah, we've been on a big operational excellence kick in a full disclosure sort of way. Almost all of our success came from breakthrough wins and inventing and like intense service focus, like obsession with the customer and intense service focus and occasional blockbuster wins. But we would do something that works really well. And then we would just do it erratically. We wouldn't like do it every month. You know what I mean? So there's like types of marketing, types of events, types of cool things that we would just do erratically. And we also were like very much like a people could do whatever they want as long as it's on the mission sort of company. Seriously, we were very liberal. Yeah, at some point you need to like also like just do everything you say you're going to do. So recently yeah. we've been building that. Actually, what we've been working on in August, which is really, really cool. We built an internal agreements tracker where anytime somebody says they're going to do something for anybody else, they write it down. There's a definition of done in there, what day they're going to do it by, who they're accountable to. Right. And we're aiming for a 100% unbroken agreements rate. Unbroken doesn't mean shipped because you could renegotiate. Things go long. But what happens is it can't be like the day of. You're like, oh no, it's not going to happen. You have to be like two days out. You have to be like, I'm going to renegotiate this. This, this, this project that we're doing is like not going to come. This is not going to come out on Friday. Do you know what I mean? It's Wednesday. It's not coming out on Friday. Right. It's, it's going to take at least another week. Do you know what I mean? And so your market is renegotiated instead of just letting Friday pass, like, oh, we missed the target, right? So just proactively renegotiating commitments if they can't be shipped, otherwise hitting them all, never failing silently. 
And it took a lot of work to install this in a culture of this and having people detect when everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that thing for you. Oh, shoot, I forgot. We're like not doing that anymore. So yeah, we're going for 100% unbroken agreements in August. We're halfway through August as of uh, our recording dates, August 15th. It's been a game changer, man. It's been so, so, so good. Then yeah, then we're doing like areas of responsibility, like exactly what people's jobs are and the processes and then be 100% unbroken on those. And then it's just, if everyone does exactly what they say they're going to do and, and you know renegotiates when we estimate wrong or whatever, then it's your analysis and your target selection is how far you go, not execution risk, right? So we're getting really, really, really tight on execution operations because if everyone does what they say they're going to do, right? And we've got the right resources, the right team and whatnot, right? Then it's your analysis and your target selection that determines how far you go, not do you execute or not. So yeah, that's where we're at. It's been super exciting. Yeah, I, I think I think Ultraworking is in a really interesting spot for the sort of big trends that are changing around both remote work and sort of increasing independence of work, people being their own contractors or setting up individual companies or being creators or whatever. Like all of that is really, I feel like, will shuffle more people towards some of the tools and systems that you have set up. I started using Ultraworking when I was at least a few of the tools when I still had a day job and it, I just didn't have, you know, I didn't have some strict timetable like management that was giving me or manager that was giving me like very clear timetables and tasks and Gantt charts and stuff like that. So I just kind of went looking for a system that would let me do it for myself and Ultraworking became that through like the monthly planning cycles. And I just, really liked it and sort of went down the rabbit hole from there into a bunch of the other tools. So I use headquarters like every week, if not every day. And I've been doing monthly planning for almost two years now, which is really cool. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's the, that's the goal right there. Yeah. I love it, man. Hey, I'm not, I'm not paying you to say this. Thank yeah. you. I mean, sometimes my, you know, my to-do list is just put X number of cycles into Y project because for lack of a better, you know, clear outcome, it's just like time in the saddle. I know sometimes that's the solution to certain sorts of problems or workloads. So I, I'm curious, actually, I know you, I've read most of Gateless. I think back when that we originally wrote that, but you went through this chapter in your life where you just like, were cranking out books and you were writing, you were like a writing machine. And I'm curious about that chapter in your life. Like what, what did you learn or become or manifest or, you know, unpack when you were kind of doing all that writing and all those books, it, what looked like, you know, really pretty rapid. So um, let's come back succession. to that. Let's come back to that because I have a very useful short thing for people based on the thing you said about how you put time in the saddle. Really, really useful. Just like like little phrases that are game changers for people. So when you're shipping a project, right? Basically what you just said is you put in a process-based target. Not I'm going to make three sales, but I'm going to make 10 calls. I'm going to make 10 calls. I'm going to do them as good as I can, whatever. Or I'm going to put in half an hour. I'm going to edit this piece of creative writing I did for half an hour. And like, I'm not even necessarily going to ship it at the end, right? Process-based target versus outcome-based target and knowing when to set one or the other is very key. That ties in with another thing about like what is good enough for a project. And this is a game changer for people. And I think a lot of times people don't know what they're doing in, in terms of these two, this dichotomy, scope to time or scope to quality. Scope to time is we're going to ship this feature on Friday. I don't care how good it is. We're putting something out on Friday. We have to put this out on Friday. And scope to quality is we're going to put this out when it's sufficiently good and it does these three things really well, right? So you can look at some movie makers, some art makers, some video game makers. They scope, some of them scope to time and some of them scope to quality. And you can kind of tell the difference, right? So 
the video game companies Blizzard, right, and the movie studio Pixar both scoped to quality. Pixar had done almost all of Toy Story 2. It was like almost done. It was like 80% done. And they're like, this isn't good enough. So they like threw it away and redid it. You know what I mean? And and because they were scoping the quality, right? Blizzard did a full game, a uh, first-person shooter based on StarCraft. They like never released it because it wasn't fun enough. And they'll like make a game take as long as it needs. And both Pixar and Blizzard will spend really a very long time on it. Whereas like Electronic Arts make the sports games, NFL game, NBA game. I don't know. I don't play them, but they make those. They come out every single year, right? Before the season's going to start with the new player rosters. And it's like coming out no matter what on that day, right? So I think it's very, very useful for people to decide, are they scoping to time? Or are they scoping to quality? Are they going to put this feature out when it's perfect? Or are they going to put this feature out on Friday? So paradoxically and counterintuitively, when you're scoping to quality, process-based targets of putting in time is very helpful. Paradoxically, when you're scoping to quality, I will put this out when it's done, then putting time in the saddle is usually the correct way to do it. If you're scoping to time where I need to put this thing out, then you want to put the deliverables. Like, hey, there's it's Tuesday. We're putting the thing out on Friday. We need to put out one third of it tomorrow, <laughs> you know, one third of it on Thursday, and then finish it on Friday. So you need to scope to the outcomes, right, in a work session to hit the time. When it's just quality, I'm going to put this out when it's excellent. That's when saying I'm going to put in six cycles, six work cycles on this. I'm just going to put in four hours on this, whatever. That's definitely how I think about the books. I mean, I, scope to quality is not a, a phrase I had used, but I, I thought of it like craftsmanship comes from ample time. Like it, it totally unconstrained, like time is irrelevant. It takes the time that it takes to reach a certain level of quality of excellence, especially for things that you publish like a book that just basically live on forever in their shipped state of quality. It's very different than, you know, a course or a piece of software or something like that. I think that's awesome. And it, it I definitely shift even in sub projects sort of between scope to time or scope to quality. But when you're, yeah, it, it is helpful to have those chunks of time and know, especially if it's a really big scope to quality project that you can watch yourself, like make progress through numbers of hours and give yourself that the dopamine for finishing the days to do, even though you're only, you know, 1% more through the task as a result of that day. Yeah, the project management, the project management and the setup on scope to quality and scope to time projects, it like doesn't look radically different. You're going to like put things in like an order and like watch them and make sure they're moving along, but they actually are quite different. Um, a lot of times with scope to quality, you're searching for an aesthetic or a theory that is capable of being the highest caliber and quality early. And that's like a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and a lot of discussions and a lot of experimentation. And it's like, if you're, if you're like making a really like think about like Tesla, they, they put out the Cybertruck. Like what a weird, cool, cool thing. You've seen a Cybertruck. Like it's this crazy futuristic. It's this thing's nuts. I guarantee that wasn't the first rendition they did in the drawing pad. You know what I mean? They, that must've, they must've been looking at all kinds of sci-fi and spaceships and, and, and all kinds of stuff and drawing all kinds of stuff. And it's so like their deliverable wasn't presumably drawing by Friday, but it's like, we're not going to consider making a truck unless it's like really uniquely badass and special and captures our ethos and captures a segment of the market and captures people's imagination that it otherwise wouldn't. And I, I would, I would guess Yeah, you can say, and we want to, you know, roll that out nine months from now or at the next conference or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So you can have a time component on quality things. as like an outer bound. Sure. It's not like they're exclusive, but they wouldn't just put out any truck. You know, if they had a garbage Chevy truck looking very generic truck, but it's electric, they wouldn't have put it out at all. 
And that actually, now that you mentioned it, that's an interesting comparison also. In the, in the Blizzard EA comparison, like Ford was EA and Tesla was Blizzard, right? Ford put out a new model year every year with some minor changes. And Tesla's like, we just ship the best car we can. And whenever we can update it and make it better, we do. So that's, that's another interesting comparison. Okay, so you have changing tack a little bit. You've lived all over the world, right? I feel like last time we talked, you were somewhere in the Pacific. I don't know when the last time we talked was, but sure, I've been, yeah, sure. When I was, when I was 19, <laughs> uh, when I was 19, one of my dreams was to go to every country in the world. And this was like, a, people are probably listening to this now like I was so hokey. Like, this was really cool. This was like really cool two decades ago, everybody. Like, this is like, I, like two decades ago, it was still kind of <laughs> hard to do. You know, hey, something before I Instagram travel blogs. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm 38 now. So you know something I realized, by the way, it's a wild thing. I'm from the last generation of people that traveled without always on 3G internationally. Last. It'll never happen again. Even if you decide not to bring your phone, your your bus driver on the from the Cambodian border to, to the town is going to have a smartphone with 3G in it. Do you know what I mean? I'm the last generation of people that had like paper maps and didn't know where the hell you were going. If you get lost, you just figure it out. And it's kind of dangerous. Like the last generation, not, not me, but everybody, right, that did that. So like the internet was just good enough that you could look up all this stuff. So you got Google Maps, but you didn't have Google Maps on your phone, right? So that was like the last generation. So there was a certain mystery and a novelty to it. Yeah, as I got a little older, I realized that every country in the world kind of doesn't matter. This was like a vain kind of arbitrary thing, like passport stamps. There are different provinces of China. Heck, there's different parts of the United States, I would say, that are more different than Belgium and France. Do you know what I mean? But they happen to be different countries because there's a line there and whatever. So yeah, and I wasn't interested in passport stamps. I really liked seeing how people live in different places and really just immersing myself in different cultures. So I was somewhere where like I didn't really think it was worth going somewhere for less than a few weeks usually. Do you know what I mean? And ideally like two or three months and just kind of like slowly rotating through. No, I would like swing through somewhere on the way to somewhere else and check it out. Sure. By and large, I'd like to post up in a, um, usually in a middle class, often a lower middle class some safe places, neighborhood, wealthy, fancy places are like the same everywhere. Do you know what I mean? They have like a little bit of local flavor. If you're in a wealthy place in the Middle East, they'll serve dates. And if you're in a wealthy place in a uh, East Asian country, they'll have Pu'er tea, but it's like the same, like like wealthy high-end designs, the same everywhere, right? So, so it's a monoculture of sorts. Whereas like the lower middle-class neighborhoods in different places, you know, lower middle-class Turkish neighborhood and a lower middle-class Mongolian neighborhood are quite different and people live quite differently. And it's quite interesting to see how people live. Awesome. I mean, did you, were you working that whole time or were you just kind of traveling to, and seeing the world and being present where you were? Yeah, I was, I was lucky. I've been a high earner during various years of my life and did very well for myself. And I was always super frugal. Just spending money never really appealed to me on a personal level. I like, I like having money so I could do, so I could do projects. Right. And, and now it's like at ultra working. It's like, I was, I was talking with, um, with our CTO the other day, if I had X millions of dollars in my personal bank that I couldn't put into the company, you know, and I couldn't secondary stuff, like hire more personal assistants and stuff like that, like just personal consumption. I wouldn't live any differently. Do you know what I mean? It would do whatever more advanced, expensive medicine stuff. Besides that, like I, I need clean food, a place that's like not too loud, good internet, good tools. That's all I need, right? So I was able to be do high earning periods and then just kind of mess around and do whatever. I'd been working in consulting, and I was put a lot of hours in guy when I'm not in a put a no hours in sort of thing. I'd been like doing, I don't know, 60, 70 hours of consulting every week. And I realized I'm like, yeah, I was like tightening the screws on stuff that already existed. I was like coming in and optimizing stuff that already existed. Right. 
And it was like, it was like great. I like the people that I work with. I like the work that I did. It was like totally fine. But I was kind of like, the world's not going to be any different as a result of me doing this. You know, you come in, you check out some process or whatever, and you're like, why don't we like tune this up here and here and here and here? And like it does, it's more efficient, whatever. And like that's, you know, like that's, that's great work. And I, I think I did good work. But I said, I really want to make a difference and, and, and make the world run just a little bit better because I was here. So I, I, I soft limited my consulting to 20 hours a week. Soft limited because I didn't bill hourly. I build build by project, so I had to kind of estimate, right? I soft limited. I'm only going to do 20 hours of consulting a week, um, and that's when I started doing writing projects, charity charity stuff. I was a nonprofit executive director, volunteer executive director of a nonprofit for a number of years. Education projects, science projects, collaborations with people, really cool stuff. By the way, you know what the crazy thing is when you artificially limit the amount of hours you put in. My income went down, but not as much as I expected. So I would say to somebody, somebody like, hey, Sebastian, you know, I heard from so-and-so that you did a good job on this and that. Will you do that? I'm like, yeah, sorry, I'm not available right now. You're probably going to need that before March. And I think I'm booked up to March. It's like, yeah, what if we triple your rates? And I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I wasn't charging enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but no, so my rates just went up really quickly. You know, I, I just reduced... So by reducing supply, and if the demand was the same... I, yeah, I guess this basic economics predicts this, but I didn't anticipate this in advance. So my rates went up and, and I earned a little bit less, but not much less. And I had all this time to spend on these things that, that, that were really meaningful to me. And then eventually I went and started ultra working and that's, that's what I do now. What year was that that you started ultra working? This is a surprisingly interesting question because like we grabbed the URL and said, <laughs> we should do something in this space. I want to say in something like December 2016, but we didn't start start until like 2018, like the end of 2018. Kind of had other jobs and other things going on, right? Yeah, yeah. It was it seems like what well, seemed a little bit like it emerged from this epic writing sprint that you did. And I, I want to kind of go back to that question of like what what were you like going into and coming out of that that sort of big writing thing? Did that help you codify ideas? Did it change things? Did it enlighten you? Like I don't, that feels like a really interesting experiment. I'm just curious, sort of how that felt from the inside. Yeah, I went through two primary, probably other ones, but but let's say two primary writing eras in my life. The first one was, I remember one day I said, you know, I really like writing and I'd, I'd like to do it. And this is back when like blogging was cool and the internet was cool and like social media wasn't a thing yet, really. Or like maybe proto early social media, but like as a modern, wasn't a thing. So, you know, back then like blogs were really cool and there's like the blogosphere and people had blog roles and blog link each other and what, like whatever. It's like a different, different world. It's like there's, there's maybe some, some, some young guy, some young gal listening to this who's like, I don't know, what the heck are they talking about? I've got my TikTok thing where it's like just beaming like, like insanity into my eyes and just <laughs> destroying my neocortex. I don't know, these blogosphere blog. All right. But back then, yeah, it was, it was a little bit different back then, but I, I blogged, I wrote a blog post every single day for, I don't know, two, three years in a row, something like that. So I just did a, a few years in a row. I'm going to write something every single day and some of them were good. And so you just get some incremental improvement. There's no targeted direction. There was nothing to it. There was no whatever. And I, I think a lot of the quality was more missed than hit in retrospect, but it hit enough and it was always decent. I was trying to make interesting stuff. Well, okay. So I said, okay, I did enough of that. Let me, let me think about this. Took some time away from it. And I said, what would me as a really, really good writer? look like. And I really, really, really sat and thought about it. Like, what would me as a level up writer look like where I was doing really, really, really special, really, really good work. And I went and I studied great writing. And I, I, I went and I looked at really uh, some of the classics in writing. My favorite book of lit literary criticism is On the Sublime by Longinus, 300 AD work. 
you know, looking at what great writing is. And there's modern versions of that and reading a lot of authors. I also studied the mechanics of writing a lot. There's a great chapter in a book. I hate the title. Titles Extreme Productivity by Bob Posen. He's a Harvard professor and a finance guy and a lawyer and does a bunch of stuff. Yeah, he has a chapter on writing and writing mechanics. It's extremely valuable, extremely, extremely valuable where he says to break writing into different stages of brainstorming, outlining, writing, and editing as separate stages. I also had research, so I had a fifth stage, and you don't separate them. So I always recommend that chapter. It's like chapter six or seven of that book to people that want to become a mechanics writer that don't rely on inspiration. So I retrained myself to write in that style from an inspiration writer. And I also studied the poetics and really tried to level up on it. After that, I committed to writing a approximately 6,000 word essay. Some of them are shorter, some of them are longer every single week. And I did this again, every single week for two or three years, which was about right for me. And what I did before I started on this, and this is something I definitely recommend to any person that's already busy with creative, that wants to get a creative project thing going in their life. If if someone's like really young, if like there's any 18 year olds listening, maybe just get going. Cause you know, like just, just put something out there and see what happens. But you know, if someone's got, got established, they're in business, they got a career or whatever. I built a backlog of, I forget whether it was like six issues or 10 issues. I had a, a backlog of six essays before I put the first one out. So that meant that I didn't have to write one a week to publish one a week, right? I had to write six and six weeks before the backlog ran out. And I try to do one a week, but you know, hey, every now and then there's a great opportunity or something happens. And then my backlog gets down to four. And I would just try to fill it back up to six and sometimes even a little more to get even more ahead of schedule, right? And so I was always six weeks ahead of schedule. I had a friend that worked at Apple. And at least some years ago, I think they were on the Apple, the iPhone 3, maybe. He said, you know, in the lab right now, they have the iPhone 5, right? So Apple's always multiple iPhones ahead. Do you know what I mean? They're not like two months away from the next iPhone version number. Like, oh, what are we going to do, guys? Like, we got to move. So, so having a backlog, if you, if you want to be on a production <laughs> yeah, schedule. This is, this is back to that example you gave about the term paper. Well, I mean, so you, you avoid that. But I mean, here's the thing. The term paper thing is fine to do acutely, but not chronically. Chronically, that'll ruin your life. Do you know what I mean? So the term paper thing, right? Let's put ourselves under massive stress to ship something. That's a great idea. That's a great idea to do occasionally to learn about yourself or because a big opportunity comes up or, hey, it's a crisis, just stack up and deal with it. But you don't want to acutely be in a crisis every freaking Thursday when your essay is coming out. So yeah, so I built the backlog. To the question of how did it affect me and influence me? Man, reality is really interesting and it's really complex. I think that's the biggest thing I got from it. I know that's not going to be very useful for anybody else listening, but but just getting an appreciation for all the nuances and depth and intensity of reality and, and kind of clarifying where you stand on some things as well. So you asked about that and it certainly did. But as well as just getting an understanding, because when you try to explain why something happens, like why did World War I happen? Do you know what I mean? And you actually try to write it out, not give the, well, oh, nationalism and blah, blah, blah. And then there was the Belgium and the treaty and the mobilization. No, no. It's really, really complex. You know, it's really, really complex why World War I started. And why did it start then and not earlier or later? Do you know what I mean? And why did it go the full intensity why it did? And why did Turkey get in? You know, Winston Churchill, by the way, the reason Turkey got in is Winston Churchill was a Lord of the Admiralty. He confiscated two Turkish battleships that they had paid England and fully paid. These battleships, World War I broke out. They said, we need them in the war effort. They confiscated them. And they really insulted the Turks as well. He didn't say, we'll pay for them. We're so sorry, whatever. He's like, we don't know if we'll pay you. Her Majesty's government will follow up with you. They declared war on England. And then that brought down the Ottoman Empire. So like, not a good move. But like super, super complex. And you look at that and the person, how the personality of Churchill and the Turkish envoys, the different factions in Turkey and blah, blah, blah. So 
getting an appreciation for the complexity and like the, the kind of hidden levers of reality. When people try to transmit lessons, they try to transmit simple, timeless lessons because those can be transmitted, right? You know, you could like, okay, here's how to focus on something. Here's how to do service. Here's what great operations look like. But when you actually get into it in any sort of business, there's thousands of levers. We were analyzing recently. We think there's probably like something like 7,000 nodes. If we were to graph everything that happens in ultra working, there's probably like 7,000 nodes on a graph of like interactions. We've been like doing some systems maps and stuff internally to improve some, some, some stuff. There's probably like 7,000 little individual interactions of like, you know, this API call at this time or this analytics getting stored there and, and, and such like that to that granular level, right? And reality has a lot of depth and a lot of nuance. And I feel like a lot of people don't engage with that. I feel like CEOs engage with that. But I think the writing was really me, me engaging with and, and, and getting exposure to the nuances of, you know, whatever, like the Russian Civil War, or, you know, like George Washington on Braddock's expedition and why they got, got the hell kicked out of them. I, I feel like that's the biggest thing is it gave me an appreciation for all the complexity and depth of reality. It's so funny that my episode with Taylor Pearson, he said something very similar that, that it's always stuck with me that I, I think is an original Taylorism. Um, he always says reality has a surprising amount of detail. And that's like, his his path there was always through studying financial crises and the finance systems and why they're necessary like all of these things that you just keep unpacking nuance and nuance and nuance and you find that if you really really want to understand something it requires understanding a shocking number of details uh, of almost anything and you can you can go down all those rabbit holes that is an obvious but i think profound point it's like that gives you empathy over anybody who's trying to accomplish anything because trying to accomplish anything is hard and you have to really have a lot of mastery to do anything with high intention and have it be successful because of all those details. What, what's crazy to me and what's terrifying to me, it's crazy and it's terrifying. So I, I think almost all of the, the story I'm about to say is, is public knowledge. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sharing no private knowledge. We, we launched Clockwork Nutrition on Product Hunt. Product Hunt's a great website where you can discover new things. It's really cool. And uh, Ryan Hoover is the founder of Product Hunt, a really admirable guy, really amazing guy. He commented on it like, oh, hey, this looks really cool. Uh, this is neat. Something like that, right? And at first we thought like, oh, okay, it's his site. He's just going and commenting on things. We looked, he actually, he had only commented on like three things in the last like months. Do you know what I mean? He hadn't been active. So I shot him an email and I was like, hey, do you want to try out Clockwork Nutrition? We'll do it on the house. No obligation. You know, you could say you hate it. If you like it, I'd be delighted if you say like it. If you don't, if, if, if neither, you don't even have to do anything, really no strings attached. You're just a guy I like, I use product on, it's been great for us, whatever. So he, he, he did, we, we set him up, we hooked him up, you know, cost us, uh, you know, we got cost of goods sold on that. So it cost us, you know, some, some hundreds of dollars, but he did it. And then he, he, he tweeted out that, that he liked it. And that, that was really neat. It's, it's kind of funny. You know, when you see the world mathematically, you see the, the math behind everything, even if something's primarily like social and appreciative and, and stuff like that. Right. So it's like, I, I just appreciate him and I'm just so grateful to him. But also mathematically, ten, tens of thousands of dollars of value. And I get to meet and, and, and socialize with this guy who's a really admirable guy, a really amazing guy. Well, here's the thing. I might have not noticed that. That was one email, one one-hour call, one judgment call. And then I, I asked a couple of team members to set up the ops around that and to waive the fees and whatnot. And okay, that's a one-off thing that again, noticing something, which takes one second of noticing, following up, which takes an email, which took three minutes, then a one hour phone call and then a one hour follow up and the team handle the rest of it. Well, here's what scares me. I think there's things like that all over the place first. Second, 
I think there's operational and systemic things where you change from like a a push system to a pull system on something, or you change a little bit how you do project management or a little bit about like how you do design or like, you know, maybe the whole magic behind Amazon was their press release style thing where they have to write a press release before a product and how that subtly shapes the whole product development process. I'm I'm nearly certain, I, I am certain that in a lot of organizations, including ours, there are little things that you flip one switch or you implement one thing and like the magnitudes are just so much higher. So I'm, I'm trying to simultaneously do a really, really good job on the day-to-day and a really, really good job of keeping the big picture in mind and like making amazing things for customers, getting great new people to hear about us and become customers and, and make the best team in the world and give them training and development. And I'm also just trying to like keep my eyes out for like, there's just random magic that on the same level of effort, we're going to get double to an order of magnitude more results if we just flip this one switch or connect this one thing. And it's, it's, it's inspiring, but it's also like terrifying. It's like, what are we missing? There must be more things like this. And like, how many of these are we overlooking? And how many of these do we flip? And history gives you a bunch of examples and analogs of people doing a very interesting thing. You know, it used to be that in the military, you'd always have the rear of your military. And then you had the front and the front, the vanguard was really good. And the rear guard was sometimes the rear guard itself was okay, but, but sometimes not as the rear, mostly not. And you had your flanks, which were like, okay, but like not the best people right on the flanks were okay. And they try to flank them. Well, Napoleon was like, Hey, forget that. We're not going to have a front or a back. Any of the four sides of our square, like military can become the front. We could just change direction without having the front reorient around. That's why one of the reasons they were so mobile. So he put good enough troops that were vanguard quality on all four of the sides of his of every square of his military. So they could just change direction without a long hike around and then reassembling. So and you couldn't really flank them. You know what I mean? It wasn't that the good guys in the front aren't there if you got on their flank. They just turn and you know, then the, the west you were fighting the west side is now the front of the thing. And those guys are also really good. So Napoleon redistributed his best guys from the front to a little bit the side, a little bit the back, and made it so that anybody was comfortable communicating and leading of what's our orientation direction going west, east, north, or south. And then it's like, okay, cool. When we're going north, you're in the vanguard. When we're going west, you're the flank. (laughs) You know, when we're going south, you're the rear guard. Done. Huge maneuverability. And it's like you change that 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 was one of the things that made them win so many of the battles in the Napoleonic Wars. Just that. Just that made them so much faster and so much better. And you couldn't really surprise them that badly and roll them up. And, and they could surprise you. They could just turn and start screwing you up, even if you flanked them. Like, oh, we got an edge. No, you don't. So that little difference, which is kind of simple, but it was like against a thousand years of military doctrine at that point. Yeah, that's amazing. That's such a simple thing. I haven't heard that story before. It sounds to like my <laughs> a bunch of my pseudo military education was just like reading Ender's Game because Orson Scott Card is like pretty well read in that. And it is eerily similar. I know it's fiction, but it's just like, you know, one or two really simple. Hey, I'm going to have a much more flexible, slightly differently subdivided army and we're going to change our orientation. Very simple things, you know, well applied can be incredibly pr- impactful on your business and your military, your life. I, I like the hunt for those too, because those are cheap right <laughs> they're, they're hard to find but they're hard cheap to find the expenses in finding them and then sometimes it's a lot of work to install them and get people if they're counterintuitive and get people comfortable with the the new way of doing yeah things. probably but social cost is probably the main that's yeah. right and you got to give it more time than you think yeah 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 and the bigger the organization the more time 
I've got uh, an idea to run by you that I would just kind of like your reaction on. And uh, just and then a, a closing question for you as we kind of wind down. Naval has this idea. I think he tweeted it. And it's, it's definitely open to interpretation. I'm going to guess you have a different take. And I'm just kind of interested to hear your riff on it. But it always stuck with me. Self-measurement is self-punishment. Agree or disagree? What's the context? A tweet. No, so not not a lot of context. But like as... As somebody who has both self-measured and aggressively not, I think it's an interesting thing. I mean, you were you have done chapters, it sounds like, of both. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, so to get my linguistics hat on, you could mean measure a couple of different ways. Like, are you measuring yourself against the standard or are you just taking data snapshots, right? And punishment sounds negative at first, but, you know, Nietzsche has this, famous thing, you know, whoever wants to jubilate up to the heavens must be prepared for grief unto death. Do you know what I mean? Because you will see that you fall short when you measure and you will see all the places that you screwed up and it will illuminate those. So there might be a little bit of a hidden counterintuitive wisdom where he's like the self-punishment's not necessarily bad. I don't know exactly what he meant. I doubt that, but maybe. My favorite quote, my favorite quote was uh, written by the greatest swordsman in Japanese history. Miyamoto Masashi. He wrote his deathbed testimony. It's called the Dakota. And it's just a bunch of like one sentence principles. I think it's number three, number four. It's my favorite quote of all time. Think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. Think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. So when I take measurements, this is something that I have to constantly remind myself of because I know I'm different than other people. And sometimes I ignore it and, and, and to my own peril. I don't compare myself to other people. And like, I don't feel really bad when something doesn't go the way I want it to go. If I just like did what I could, you know, sometimes someone screws something up and they're just, I hate myself and, and you know, and I'm just kind of like, hmm. the question I was asking myself is at the skill level and knowledge level I had when I made those decisions and executed that way, could I have known better? If the answer was no, I don't feel bad at all. Zero. And anything short of being really negligent, I'm like, huh, data, let's, uh, let's fix it. So for me, it's kind of like if you track your, how much iron you're pumping in the gym, that measurement, it's not, oh, I'm a strong man. Oh no, today I'm a weak man. It's just like, okay, like whatever. It's just data. Let's make those weights go up and let's keep other data and like make sure we're healthy and not get injured. So tentatively to colloquial definition, I tentatively disagree. But that but that worries me because Naval is such a smart guy. So whenever somebody's so smart, so something that I don't agree with, I'd be very willing to learn more and explore. Maybe, maybe he's onto something there. Maybe he means something a little subtle. Well, he's got enough of a philosophical bent that sometimes he is very he's very much optimizing for happiness or state of mind or something. And I, I imagine this to come from the sort of the philosophical with inner peace as, as much more the goal than an operating principle within a company. Though, to your point, like there are times when that observation that I am or I'm not falling short and the need for a feedback loop is a really important one. So I just think it's interesting, you know, for, for, to drop that observation into the middle of a bunch of people who are obsessively measuring everything, I think is pretty is pretty interesting. It, it is probably at least sometimes the basis for self-punishment, but it doesn't have to be to your point. And I've heard you interviewed a bunch of times where you are really thoughtful, I think, about, oh, like that experiment did not go as intended or I failed, but that's okay. And like, I'll try something different or I'll try something again. The other thing is, the other thing is, I think there's sometimes in life, and I'm a very big believer in this, where you want to do something for a qualitative or philosophical reason. You think it's the right thing to do. You're like, I'm doing this and I don't care what the numbers show or the data shows. I'm like philosophically committed or aesthetically committed to this. 
And, and I'm very willing to do that. And sometimes people are like, hey, let's track, let's measure. I'm like, no, we're doing this the artistic way. And I'm very strong. Like you could force me to give my case analysis and logic as to why it might pay off. But you can't talk me out of this. I'm doing it because it's really good. So, you know, there's people that like study all the industry trends and music and then make a song that sounds like all of them. And there's people that are like, I'm doing this weird thing and people might not like it and they persist for years and they're the ones that create trends. So I think there is something to be said about if you're doing something really unique or something special to you that maybe you could use data to refine your approach, but maybe you don't want to and you want to be on more of a qualitative basis. And that might even be on just a feeling or an intuition. I'm not against perception intuition. I'm actually very big believers in those as well. So I, I think you need to know what's the right tool for the job, what's called for in the situation and what you want. Yeah, that, that's something I admire about you, actually. I think, you know, there's, you are definitely an outlier in how the precision and sort of effort that you put into some of the quantitative measurements, but it does not blind you to the the impact of intangibles or unmeasurables or whatever. Like that seems to almost get equal weight with you, even though you take the, the quantitative to an extreme and something that else that I forgot about this until just now you stuck in my brain years ago. I, I can't even remember how long it was you were doing. I think you were talking about your monthly planning and like you, you pick a theme or a topic or like a discipline. You have like a tagline for a month or some period of time that you stick with. And I think for some of the particularly extreme ones, you even like you talked about like altering your your physical appearance or your environment to sure. yeah, get a haircut or, or change your furniture around a little bit or put a painting up. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To like reinforce that theme. I think this one, the, the one that I remember, I think you like were in a hardcore like operational or output mode and you like shaved your head and you were like every morning when I look in the mirror, I'm oh, yeah, I'm in beast mode. Like, here we go. Like no yeah. extraneous anything. Yeah, um, and you could go get more like ornamental clothing, or you could go, you know, dress a little more like old school mechanic and overall style. Yeah, changing your physical appearance so you look different in the mirror is a great way when you're doing a discontinuous break and you want to have a bit of an identity shift or be deep on something. Yeah, it's really, really good and cheap to do that. So yeah, I'll do that. To the quantitative qualitative point, I mean, if I had to choose between all my quantitative skills and qualitative skills, I choose the qualitative skills. You know what I mean? It's like, where do I think the world's going? What do people need? How do we do something really special? You can put rubrics and frameworks and stuff around these a little bit to help you think about them. But at the end of the day, it's, it's very qualitative. But then, you know, around the edges, you put down some, some kind of, you know, there's a reason they have timetables at train stations and you you know when the train's going to leave and the train doesn't leave when the conductor feels like it it should leave and you you know <laughs> right like there's a reason they do that which is that it works it works better right so you do that stuff too so that you, i have this beautiful idea we'll put metal rails on the ground with wooden ties and steam engine machines to carry people and livestock and materials from city to city and then it's like okay let's put together the timetable of Hoff and this magical thing happens <laughs> you know like steam engines like amazing right and then like timetable and like maintenance schedules and stuff like that. And, and, and the same ones for you with personal stuff, your monthly planning and you do habits, stuff like lights and maybe some time tracking if you want to optimize that so that you can make all the magic happen. But yeah, I mean, you couldn't have derived, I presume, the steam engine from a pure quantitative, certainly not at that time. You know what I mean? A lot of the magic comes from a qualitative. But then, yeah, you go quantitative, objective and whatever to make things actually happen reliably and into a higher standard and magnitude, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the pattern over and over again is that I think I was reading this in the beginning of infinity, like the theory almost always, which in this analogy is qualitative, almost always predates the 
comes before the invention and then the quantitative comes in to sort of either optimize or explain the invention that sprung from the theory that the, that the tinker sort of made happen. So last question here and take your time with it. What is what is the mental model or heuristic that you find yourself applying the most often? The most often? Hmm. I like to come back to service focus over and over and over and over again. And, and I try to really pleasantly, politely, lovingly drill this into our team. You know, a lot of people, when they do things, they're doing the thing because they said they're doing the thing or they're getting paid to do the thing or whatever. At the end of the day, this needs to serve people in some way. And, and that person might be yourself. So like, you know, some people like, it's funny, right? If you're like in a good workout practice, I do yoga twice a week, one-on-one, virtually over, over the, 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 the video conferencing. I'm not like, oh, I have to do yoga. I'm like, okay, cool. It's yoga. I like it. It's part of my routine, right? But sometimes when you're first getting into something, you're like, oh man, maybe I should make myself go to do yoga or whatever. Maybe I should make myself go to the gym. It's no, right? Just reminding yourself, it's not like I have to go to the gym. It's like, hey, cool. I'm going, I'm building up my muscles. I'm building up my longevity. I'm going to feel good afterwards. And coming back to like why you were doing things and then optimizing those things or optimizing. I don't think about optimizing all the time. It's just what we're talking about today. <laughs> doing things for that reason. You know, good writers versus bad writers. Good writers are thinking about the audience. How do I make this useful for the audience? How, like, like, what does the audience need to know? People that write standard operating procedures, there's like two types of operating procedures. There's ones that are written by people that are really like empathetic and thoughtful that are like, all right, a new person's looking at this like, hey, and then I'm going to shoot a little two-minute explainer video on this one because it's like really tricky. Like, hey, this is tricky. Don't sweat it, but make sure you click this button, but not that button. You'll hit X and it'll clear all your work. It's like an old bank system. You know what I mean? There's really thoughtful, empathetic people that write SOPs and they're great. And there's SOPs that are freaking garbage. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Right. So coming back over and over and over again, like, oh, I have to write an SOP for this thing. It's going to be terrible. If you're like another human is going to use this and I'm trying to make their life easy. I'm trying to connect with them. I can put a couple little jokes in there. I can make it stylish a little bit. I can put a fun quote in there. When you remember that the vast majority of things you do, you're doing for somebody else. Do you know what I mean? Or, or for yourself, there's like a reason you're doing things and coming back to what is that reason and making sure I hit that reason, not do the stuff that's on the to-do list. That's, that's probably the most important one for me, service focus. I like that a lot. And I had never considered it in service of your future self, but I think that's super, super important. And I like it. Thank you for that answer and for taking your time with it. And Hey, what's your, what's yours? What's yours? Maybe you've talked about it on a past podcast that I haven't heard. What's, what's yours? The the thing probably in this chapter of life it is it is leverage. I'm I think making the transition from how do I squeeze my fruit the hardest to get the most juice out of it to how do I best sort of gather and apply the resources that I have around me to increase my impact and achieve the desired outcome for me and the people around me. And I think that also it is it is an intense and hard work mode, but it is a really good mix to me of like the judgment that we talked about, but the intensity of the sort of individual contributor work period, but it sets up this sort of life mode where you can still be really high impact without being incredibly optimized from a like productivity perspective. Well, from the, from the other meaning of productivity, I think I'm um, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Like I, I, I believe that after a chapter of this, I will be able to sort of have equivalent or increasing or ever increasing sort of compounding impact and outcomes without having to scale effort linearly and, and continue to do that or even sustain it. 
Well, because you can't. There's 168 hours a week. Because yeah, once you... And, and it is super valuable. A lot of the things that we do are to help individuals scale up their performance. And that's, that's really needed when you're you know, in your 20s and you're, you're getting your game going, right? And then you know, increasingly, we bring out stuff like clockwork of like, hey, we'll just eliminate this whole area. All nutrition, all food prep, all planning. Like We roll out stuff like that. That's more senior people like that one, you know? Clockwork's an awesome idea. I was fiddling with this idea also because I had been through, like the previous year, I had been through the like, all right, I'm going to hire a trainer who's going to like program my meals down to the calorie and all the all the workouts and all the everything. I was like, oh, okay, like I understand this architecture now. And so I was doing it actually the full stack for a friend of mine who is like obsessively down a rabbit hole about something else, but was having like some health challenges. And so I was like, all right, I'll program your meals. I'll do all the shopping. I'll do all this stuff. I'm just going to get it delivered to your house. And I discovered that if you, he would eat the food that was in his house, he would follow the path of least resistance. So if you could get the right food into his house, he would eat healthy and be good and be happy and more productive. And so I was like messing with how to productize this. And then I saw Clockwork Nutrition come out with like a very different approach, but it was so interesting. I was like, oh, this no, is it's the same. No, it's, it's, no, it's literally the same. It's just that we just use meal delivery services instead of, instead, instead of, yeah, of groceries, right. which is only possible technologically recently. Now, yeah. It makes it an even better product. But yeah, I think I need to give it a try. Actually, I haven't had the right life circumstance to to try it. Yeah, I think it's so cool. Happy to have you on there. But but hey, I love I love where you're going. Because, you know, that is the iteration is is you start by not maximizing, but doing really well on your individual performance. Then when you have some resources, you get rid of some domains. Again, you know, you get some some help, whether that's personal trainer or medical or an assistant or whatever. And then if you really want to have impact, then it's, it's, uh, it's teams and it's, it's systems. And, and to some extent, it is a lot of, of qualitative and theory. And the job becomes a lot of thinking and, and good judgment and relationships and, and really thinking about and designing things. And it's very interesting how that shifts over time. So yeah, that's really cool. Hey, let's do, let's do this again sometime. This was great. Thank you for running me down and saying, hey, Sebastian, you got to be on this show. This is amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. This is great. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, like I said, I'm a big fan. I'm excited to sort of introduce you and ultra working to a bunch of other people that I, I hope get as much value out of it as I have, especially, you know, in the, in the world of like working indie really helps to have, have some rails and some frameworks. And you guys have put a ton of work into these. I have always found them really helpful and it's good to get a, to know a little bit more the mind behind the software. Hey, much appreciated, man. Thank you so much. And the feeling is, uh, is very mutual. We gotta, we gotta do it again sometime. Appreciate it. Appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, you will also love number 15 with David Perel, which we mentioned in that episode. Also mentioned episode number 42 with Taylor Pearson. Similar sort of approach, fascinating guy. A lot of interesting mental model overlap there. And number 38 uh, with Robert Hayes and Chris Ho of Athena. Also really about increasing your impact, increasing uh, the output that you can have all great episodes that I enjoy revisiting myself as I learned a lot from them. For a free way to support the show, please leave a quick review or text this episode to a friend or coworker you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for listening. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage.
Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.